Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 and take up where the Lord has led us thus far. 1 Peter chapter 2, in order to provide us a little bit of a framework for verses 9 and 10, let me read verses 7 through 10. 1 Peter 2, verse 7. Unto you therefore which believe, He is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him, who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. Amen and amen. Verse 9 opens with but. And it is such an inspired and wonderful disjunctive as I often explain to you. There is in the pages of Scripture wonderful gospel presented by the word but. Because but draws a contrast for us. And there is a great contrast between verse 8 and verse 9. In verse 8, we have an appointment to disobedience and the judgment of God. In verse 9, there is a a choice made by God for a generation, priesthood, nation, and peculiar people as opposed to those in verse 8. And so but takes on great meaning. But is not grammatically required here. Verse 9 could read, Ye are a chosen generation after the period that ends verse 8. But that but, which in common usage, many English teachers would say you shouldn't start a sentence with but, are wrong. Because when you want but to be emphasized, you'll start a sentence with it. And that but is precious to us right here because it draws and makes further emphasis on the comparison and contrast between verses 8 and 9. I love these buts. Because if it wasn't for the buts of the grace of God, you wouldn't be here this morning. Where would you be? Where could you be if it weren't for the buts of the grace of God? The buts of the Bible offer an interesting study and a reminder of God's justice and mercy. The justice of verse 8, the mercy of verse 9. And oh Lord, help us to appreciate that. The contrast here is so great, so severe, and so stupendous that it deserves our attention. Because look at the difference between being appointed to disobedience to stumble over Christ and being chosen to love Christ. Because Christ died for you and by Him you believe. Because 121 taught us that it's by Jesus Christ that we believe. What an enormous difference. And the difference is not ascribed to men, the decisions they make or the decisions they fail to make, but rather to God Himself. Because He's the one that made the appointment. He's the one that made the choice. Between verses 8 and 9. You know, way back in verse 18, when we look at the word but right in the verses around verse 9, we can rejoice in the but of verse 19. 
Because verse 18 describes Jewish superstition about the value of gold and silver received from, by tradition from their fathers with the precious blood of Christ. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ and there the means of redemption is contrasted to mere silver and gold. In verses 18 and 19, we look at chapter 2 and verse 4 where it says, to whom coming as unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men, because the Jewish nation did indeed disallow and reject Jesus Christ, but chosen of God. And so wherever you find that but, there's this contrast drawn. The men of Israel rejected Jesus, but God chose Him, and that made all the difference in the world, so that we could have last Sunday in verse 6, that... The stone which they disallowed, verse 7, is become the head of the corner, which is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. And so forth. We could keep reading about the butts of Scripture, but they make an interesting study. When you think about the population of the world in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know we can only speculate on how many men lived back then. You know it may have been a half a billion. It may have been 500 million. It may have been a couple hundred million only. It's not like the population today that stands at seven and a quarter billion today. But you think of, of all those people, and yet how big was the church of God in the days of Jacob when he moved the church from Canaan to Egypt? 68 to 75. There's four different numbers mentioned about that group of people depending on how many spouses and so forth that you're considering but it's around 70, 75 people. That's a small number. But they were a chosen generation. They were the family of God. They were the people of God. And look at the small number that they were in the earth. The butts of the Bible. In the four distinctions that follow a chosen generation, that is a but based on God's mercy. A royal priesthood, that is a but based on God's mercy. And holy nation, a peculiar people. These four things deserve a but because they are in contrast to what we are by nature and would be by choice were it not for God's grace in our lives. How many more buts could rightly be generated to describe God's great mercy in your life? Out of the world's population of seven and a quarter billion, how many believe the gospel? But you believe. But I believe. Praise His glorious name. It is statistically significant as we move through this but and we think of other buts. Lord, have mercy upon us. What should have resulted from the foolish choices you have made in your life? What should have resulted in this world and the next world? Death in this world, eternal death or second death in the next world, but God saved you from your own choices. He saved me from my own choices. So we start off this verse with the word but, and it's glorious. And we want to see the contrast of God's justice in verse 8 and God's mercy in verse 9. Ye are a chosen generation. Now for those of you that read Hosea chapter 1 last night, and you could have read Hosea chapter 2, but it was a little more confusing than chapter 1, I hope you understand that God rejected Ten tribes of Israel. And those Assyrians that you heard about a few minutes ago by Brother Newell, 
that were all dead corpses in the morning were dead outside the city of Jerusalem. They were not dead at all when they took the ten tribes captive and then scattered them abroad in the nations of the earth called the dispersion or the diaspora of the Jewish nation. Those ten tribes scattered abroad. Do you know how long these brethren had been scattered into Asia Minor of modern day Turkey? For over 500 years. They were not the people of God. They were rejected. But now, here comes Peter along, writing to them as a Jew, a pillar of the church in Jerusalem, writing to these scattered Jews and telling them, Ye are a chosen generation. And he is drawing the distinction with the Jews of Jerusalem who crucified him, that are the ones of verse 8, that found in Jesus Christ a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But these Jews were totally different. These were the ones in the first part of verse 7 that found Him to be precious. Who made that difference? God made that difference by a choice. A choice that He made. But ye are a chosen generation. And the word generation here is not referring to a period of time in which men live together contemporaneously at the same time, but the word generation here is being used for a progeny, descendants, or a family of God. This was the family of God, and these people were the family of God, though the Jews in verses 7 and 8 were not. And that is serious business. When you are writing scattered Jews that had been in Turkey for five to 700 years, and you're telling them that the Jews in Jerusalem were appointed to destruction and disobedience when the Lord Jesus Christ was presented to them, but you were caused to believe by the Lord Jesus Christ because God chose you to be His generation of people. The choice here is God's electing grace contrasted to the reprobation of verse 8. Reprobation is the opposite of election. If you elect out of a group of people, those you do not choose, you reject. And the word theologically, and it's in the Bible, is reprobate. That is a person that's been rejected rather than having been chosen. And so throughout the pages of Scripture, there are God's chosen people, there are God's rejected people. There are God's elect people, and there are are the reprobates that God has rejected. What is painful is that some want to argue, why is God not gracious to all? When you teach election and reprobation, the hand goes up, but why isn't God gracious to everyone? We answer, why is God gracious to anyone? What in the world are you talking about to question God that He ought to show His grace and mercy to everyone? Why should He show that? There is no reason in man And there's no reason in God. God is just and holy. And when men sin, they deserve His judgment, punishment, and hatred. Because God hates sin. Of course, that isn't taught. And God doesn't just hate the sin. He hates the sinner of the sin. The Bible says it plainly. We've learned the verses. I don't need to quote them to you, but maybe we ought to do one. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. 
Psalm 5 and verse 5. Brethren, men argue with us by saying, why is God not gracious at all? We answer, why is God gracious to any? Because if He was just holy, and if He was just and righteous, He would send us all to hell like He is sending all the sinning angels to hell. Some will fuss with us when we read them Romans chapter 9 and verse 13 where it says that God loved Jacob but hated Esau. Some will fuss with us and say, why did God hate Esau? We would respond again by saying, why did God love Jacob? Because to us, God loving Jacob is far more contradictory to his nature than God hating Esau. God ought to have hated Esau. God ought to have hated you. And God ought to have hated me. But thanks be to God, He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took the full brunt of His hatred of sin on the Lord Jesus so that we are seen as the righteousness of God in Him, holy and without blame. Those chosen here in this particular phrase were Jews considered as Jews in their eyes, worshiping in synagogues that were part of the dispersion of of Israel. And what a blessing. They're a generation in a family sense of that word. Look at a couple of references, and this will get me behind if we're not careful. Deuteronomy chapter 10. I just want to read you a few references about the generation of God. Paul would actually use the expression in Ephesians chapter 3 about the family of God of whom the whole family of God in heaven and in earth is named. We're God's family because we're God's children. We've been born again to be His children, so we're His family. We're His generation. Deuteronomy 10, verse 15 does not have the word generation, but you'll understand it from the verse. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and He chose their seed after them, even you, above all people, as it is this day. There's his generation. And for those that wonder about those that came out of Egypt that never made it to the land of Canaan, God loved them. When you read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5, and it says, those fathers ate and drank of Christ, this text tells you that that generation, that group of men, distinct from the ones now living, because Deuteronomy is written to the nation that took the land of Canaan. They were the ones 20 years of age and under. God says, only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them. Just keep that in mind and remember that uh, for all time, not just for today. Psalm 22 and verse 30. Psalm 22. I love the butts of the Bible. Amen. But when it pleased God, Paul would say about his own conversion, but when it pleased God to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. He says in Galatians chapter 1, We ourselves were sometimes foolish, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, but... When the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have... And so forth. The Bible is glorious. And these buts should grab our attention because this verse is going to call on you to show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so we need to get worked up about what He did for us to get us into His light. And He did a lot for us. 
Psalm 22 and verse 30 about the Lord Jesus Christ. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. A chosen generation of the Lord's people. Jesus died for a specific seed. Isaiah 53 says that when he was dying on the cross, he shall see his seed. He'll stand before God in the great day of judgment and say, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. That's the generation of God. That's the family of God. These are my brothers and my sisters. This is your family. A chosen generation. The Jews assumed that they had been chosen because in their birth certificate, it said great-grandpa was Abraham. But not these Jews. They didn't, they weren't quite so confident because for 500 to 700 years, they'd been living in Turkey. God had cast the ten tribes off. He brought Judah and Benjamin back from Babylon, but he didn't pull these ten nations out of the rest of the, these ten tribes out of the rest of the nations like he had the Jews from Benjamin and Judah. And yet here, Peter is telling them, as a Jew from Jerusalem, you're a chosen generation of God. Now, he'd said a lot of other things leading up to this, and I hope you can remember all that's been preached so far from 1 Peter, because there's a lot been said. I mean, verse 2 of chapter 1 has already said, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Look at Psalm 73, as Asaph refers to this generation, when he was the people of God, the children of God. He didn't want to open his mouth and say some of the foolish things that were running through his mind, but he wrote them down for us so that we could know that sometimes when we're foolish in our mental thinking, we're like great men of the Bible, like Asaph. Psalm 73 and verse 15, If I say, I will speak thus, Behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. God has a family. God has a generation. God has a seed. And it's all by His choice. And these Jews were part of it. I hope that you can appreciate on one hand, what Peter's epistle would have meant to them. And then on the other hand, we can gather what it should mean to us. Because let the truth be told right now. These Jews of the dispersion had been cast off by God, as you read in Hosea chapter 1, and had been cast off for nearly 700 years. Over 500 is the way I've described it to you in another sentence. But where do we stand? We've got the Jews that were God's children and brought back from Babylon. We've got these dispersed Jews, but then where do we Gentiles come in? We're farther off from any of that. We were never the people of God. And so we ought to look at these words because these words apply to us. God has now made up one body, which is going to be called a priesthood here, and it's going to be called a nation. It's going to be called a peculiar people, and it's already being called a generation that includes Gentiles. We're farther off than any of them. So our praise should be greater than the praise of any Jew, even of the dispersion, because we never had any part with them at all. Lord, help us to see that so that we will show forth the praises of Him who hath called us out of darkness. A chosen generation. A royal priesthood. Oh, what a precious little description that we have right here about these Jews. Now, where were the priests of the Jews laboring? Where was their altar? Where was the veil? It was in Jerusalem. These Jews are hundreds and hundreds of miles away across the Mediterranean, up in the nation of Turkey, toward Europe. 
And look at what Peter calls them. A royal priesthood. We do not appreciate priests as much as we should because we've never had need of a priest. But oh, we do need a priest and God's made us priests. Rather than Peter identifying these Jews as constituents or congregants, these are words that priests use about the people that come to them for priestly work. What words do priests use for people who come to them for priestly work? Constituents, congregants, supplicants. But Peter doesn't use any words like that. Because we have one great high priest, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who took His own blood one time into the presence of God and offered it through the eternal Spirit, and it was accepted. He, he shall see of the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. Isaiah chapter 53. Our God is satisfied with our great high priest who sits at His right hand and who makes priestly intercession for us continually. And so we are priests. And He sits as King of the universe. And we sit with Him in heaven by regeneration in a vital capacity that is mysterious to explain, but stated in the Word of God in Ephesians 2.4, And you hath He raised up and made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are king priests, as Revelation 1 verses 5 and 6 explains, as the, as the angel signified to John, about what the Lord Jesus Christ had done for him. We're made kings and priests unto our God. Here it's called a royal priesthood. The word royal means kingly, pertaining to the king's family. A royal priesthood. Now remember, right back there in verse 5, Peter has already told these dispersed Jews, the reason we know they're dispersed Jews is because verse 1 says, strangers scattered, and it mentions five provinces of what is now modern Turkey. So we know that these are Jews of the dispersion. And verse 12, right here in chapter 2, is going to tell them how they ought to live among the Gentiles, which proves that we're dealing with Jews. You'd be amazed at how many pages have been written to try to prove that this epistle was written to Gentiles. But I've got several arguments against that, and I hope you just heard two of them. Verse 1 of chapter 1, verse 12 of chapter 2, and Peter was a minister of the circumcision not the uncircumcision. Galatians 2 tells us to whom Paul, Peter wrote and preached and to whom Paul wrote and preached. So here we are, a royal priesthood. They were called an holy priesthood up in verse 5. There were no priests in Turkey. The priests were in Jerusalem. And yet Peter calls them a royal priesthood. I hope that you'll consider that from a Jewish standpoint of the dispersion, that would have meant so much to them and would have moved them so greatly to have had that told them twice, once in verse 5 and then once here in verse 9. But they're royal priests. The Jews knew full well that to be a king in Israel, you had to come from the tribe of Judah. To be a priest in Israel, you had to come from the tribe of Levi, you couldn't come from both. You say, what about your mommy? God didn't measure anyone by their mommy. God measured everyone by their daddy. Which tribe did they come from? Judah? Levi? If you came from Judah, there was a chance that you could be a king because you're in that line from David. If you come from Levi, you could be a priest if you're a son of Aaron. If your genealogy went back to Aaron, 
then you could be a priest. But here Peter is telling them, you're a royal priesthood. It doesn't matter what tribe you come from. Remember, Judah was in Jerusalem. Judah wasn't scattered over there in Turkey by the Assyrians. But they're royal priests in their own right, and so are we. Praise God. Jesus Christ has made us kings and priests. We reign with Him now. We shall reign with Him on the earth in a day coming, and we shall sit with Him and reign in the great day of judgment. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we shall judge angels. Do you know who we're reigning with when we do that? The Lord Jesus Christ. When the Bible describes in Revelation 19 the Lord Jesus Christ being on a white horse at the head of an army, we're on white horses right behind Him. This is the picture the Bible gives us of what Jesus has accomplished for us with God. We are kings and priests of the God of heaven. The Lord has certainly raised up the tabernacle of David, hasn't He? He has Jesus as the head of that holy nation. And he has us right along with him as kings and priests, called here a royal priesthood. The two highest offices in Israel were king or high priest. The Christian Jews that Peter wrote were now both. And so are you, brethren. So are you. We reign. Don't let this world discourage you. Don't let this world beat on you. We reign. All things are ours. The full inheritance just hasn't been declared yet from the mouth of God. But it has been in the pages of Scripture. He will show. He will rip off this entire world, the bondage of corruption, and put it into our hands. We are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ of all things, and we shall rule with Him, and we're presently ruling in certain respects. Praise His glorious name. It says in Holy Nation, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation. They were so far from the nation that they had been born in. They were so far from the nation of of the Jews in Israel, and yet Peter calls them a holy nation. I'd like you to think for a minute about nationalism so that you can appreciate these words. Do you know what nationalism means? Think American pride. Think German loyalty. Think Japanese kamikaze pilots. Nationalism is the love and pride of one's nation, which varies from strong to fanatical. Nationalism. You cannot fully appreciate being citizens or having had ancestors that were citizens of a nation that was always perpetually God's darling. Though cast off for short periods of time, he would regather them together. And what would he do to those nations that had taken them captive and been used by him as a chastening rod? He would destroy them, miserably destroy them. And he did that over and over. Can you appreciate the nationalism that these Jews would have had? Remember, there's two things that we want to keep in our hands when we study the Word of God in an epistle like this. We want to remember the audience that... The Holy Spirit inspired this writer to say these things to. And that's these dispersed Jews, and we want to remember us. There's something missing up front here. Did we have it here last week? There should be an American flag and a Christian flag up here. Have we ever had an American flag and a Christian flag up here? No, because when we come into this house, the emphasis is on the fact that we are citizens 
of this holy nation. Yes, we're still citizens of America because we live here and we were born here, which automatically made us citizens. We didn't really even have much of a choice in the matter. And we're thankful for the nation that we live in and we're thankful for all the blessings that we enjoy here. And anyone that knows me knows that I'm very thankful for all those blessings. However, those blessings just completely disappear when we think about this holy nation. America is not a holy nation. America was never a holy nation. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house of God, the tabernacle of David, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, now that is a holy nation. And we are part of it, brethren. The scattered Jews had been dispersed for hundreds of years. Now they were strangers in foreign countries. But here Peter is telling them that they were a holy nation. They were a holy nation with David as their king. Do you know that when you read Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea, you better be very careful because sometimes you're going to read in those prophecies that came hundreds of years after David that God was going to restore the nation to preeminence under David their king. And you start to think to yourself, how in the world I'm so, I'm so messed up on Bible chronology, I don't know how that can even be possibly true. Well, it's true spiritually. In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, made up of Jews and Gentiles, under the Lord Jesus Christ as the son of David, but called David in certain places just to mess with your mind if you don't want to study all the Bible to find out what it's referring to. And so when it says in Acts chapter 15, when James quoted from Amos chapter 9 that God was building again the tabernacle of David, how was he building it? By the conversion of Gentiles. That was the council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. That is one. The dispensationalists say that's the most important verse in the Bible. We'll say, okay, okay, that's the most important verse in the Bible. Do you know what James gives as the interpretation for Amos chapter 9? The household of Cornelius being converted by Peter as the fulfillment of Amos chapter 9, that Gentiles were being brought in to form up this kingdom and this nation with Jesus as its head. That's no millennial prophecy. That's no prophecy for nationalistic Jews or for Jews in the flesh. That is for spiritual Jews and Gentiles that are the elect of God, as they're called right here, a holy nation. Thank you, Lord. Oh, My brethren, we don't have a flag up here because we don't pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States in the presence of God. If you want to pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States outside this place, that's that's your liberty to do that. Our first allegiance is to the kingdom of heaven. And when this nation contradicts the kingdom of heaven, we're going to obey the kingdom of heaven. Until then, until then, and trust me, from Romans 13, if you can't remember, Trust me for one more week until I get to verse 13 next Sunday. And I'll show you that when I, in context of what I'm saying, we had better be the best citizens this nation has. Because we understand citizenship in this nation at a higher level than they do. You know what verses 13 to 17 are about, don't you? Submission to civil authority. Because right here, in these two sermons today, we are at the transition in 1 Peter. Transitioning from what God has done for us to what we should be doing for Him. Common among the apostles to write in the first verses and chapters of an epistle what God has done and then what we should do. And so we're going to transition today between verses 10 and 11 from what God did to what we should do. 
and it's going to go right into honoring our civil authorities. So we don't have a flag. Because why in the world would we want a flag in a church? Who even came up with the idea? Why? There's, fl there's plenty of flags flying out there. Why don't you drive by the post office every day on your way home from church? Then that Christian flag, I don't even know where that thing came from. You know, that was some Sunday school gimmick made up by somebody. But you know, once they come up with these little things that are outside the Bible, people get all emotional about them. I think there's probably some of you getting emotional right now because of the way I'm talking about the flag in a church. But then there's that Christian flag that's all made up and people get warm and fuzzy about it. And so Southern Baptist churches all have to have those two flags standing up there because it's, it's just part of the house of God. No, it isn't. It doesn't have anything to do with the worship of God. There's no such thing as a Christian flag. You know, the ensign that we've read about is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read about him in Romans chapter 15 when we were back in that chapter. We can compare it to Americanism, which has its own fanatical, patriotic, obsessive idolatry. You know, we've met people who want to consider themselves Christian Americans, like somehow those words are cousins to each other or second cousins, but they're not. Right. Our nation is so opposed to Bible Christianity, and it really has been opposed to Bible Christianity, Bible Christianity for a long time. Right. Bible Christianity right. is what I'm talking about, not Almanac Christianity. Bible Christianity. We should compare it to Americanism as Gentile Christians in America. We are citizens of a nation with Jesus Christ as King. Our first and greatest allegiance is not to the American flag, but to the Holy Bible. Our first and greatest loyalty and service is not the President, but rather Jesus Christ. America has no value or virtue that is not infinitely exceeded by Jesus Christ's kingdom. Our nation has many faults and problems from top to bottom, but God's nation has none. And you can rejoice in that fact. But let me say one more thing before we go on to the next phrase. For those of you that have heard me preach through Romans 13, our government, even the highest office in our government, President Barack Hussein Obama, is God's minister to us for good. I want to be perfectly understood but what I, that doesn't matter very much. I want you to perfectly understand this, that our first national loyalty is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And so these Jews in Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, they were loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we're going to learn in verse 13, that loyalty to Christ means that we are loyal to those officers that he has put in positions of civil authority over us. Just like we would be to fathers, just like we would be to husbands, just like we would be to masters on the job, and so forth. Look at that next phrase, a peculiar people. Peculiar people. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. These are God's blessings upon one group of people set in total distinction to what was in verse 8 where they were appointed to be disobedient. Peculiar people. You know how we use the word peculiar? Meaning something strange or weird. The word peculiar is not used here that way at all, nor intended that way. Peculiar means 
that is one's own private property that belongs to or pertains to an individual person distinct from others. It means a special exclusive ownership by someone. We are God's peculiar people because He has exclusive rights to us. He owns us. We're His. We're all His. We're exclusively His. We're uniquely His. We're only His. That's the peculiar people. Let me show you a couple of references. Look at Exodus 19. Exodus 19, as that nation was coming together in size, as they came out of the land of Egypt, God had a few things to say to them. Exodus chapter 19, about this word peculiar, a peculiar people. Do you know that you are God's peculiar treasure? You are God's exclusive treasure. He owns you. He has bought you. You are His. You are His darling. You are like the apple of His eye. It doesn't mean that you're weird and strange. It doesn't mean that we do things in order to be different with the world just to be different. The things that we do are commanded in the Bible, and if that makes us different, so be it. But we don't seek to be peculiar in this way. God's made us peculiar in this way. I read to you Exodus 19, verse 3, Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. Are are there any differences between those two phrases? House of Jacob and children of Israel? No. Is Jacob's other name Israel? Is your house, your family, made up of your... Okay, good. Verse 4, Ye have seen, this is God speaking to Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians. Oh yes, we love the ten tribes in the Red Sea, Lord. And how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be un- ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. But what a difference. Holy nation is used here. Kingdom of priests is used here. But it's all inferior to the New Testament idea of those words. These words in the Old Testament, if you weren't from the tribe of Levi, and in fact descending from Aaron, you couldn't be a priest. We are priests. We can go right into the presence of God right now, including our children, without anyone's help. But anyway, there's the peculiar people, a peculiar treasure unto me of all peoples, because all the earth is mine. I could have picked any nation I wanted to be mine. I picked you. I made you my peculiar treasure. You are my unique, exclusive, only relationship with as my children in my house, my people. Look at Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 and 2. Deuteronomy 14, 1. Ye are the children of the Lord your God. Now that's a chosen generation. Because God chose them out of the world. God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their seed after them. Ye are the children of the Lord your God. Ye shall not cut yourselves nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. That doesn't mean a girl can't get her ears pierced. And it doesn't mean you can't have a tattoo. It means you can't cut yourselves or make baldness or mark your flesh, as it will say in other places, for the dead. A religious ritual. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. Therefore, religious rituals of pagans cannot be adopted by God's people. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. And the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto Himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. 
What a choice God made of that little nation. He ravaged the nation of Egypt for the little nation of Israel. He destroyed them. Pharaoh's counselors told him, Don't you know that the nation's been destroyed? But God had said, I'll harden his heart so that I can get me some honor upon Pharaoh. And when I'm done, I'll get him into the Red Sea. I just want you to remember the God that we're dealing with. And we heard about it this morning from Psalm 46. Let's come and behold the desolations he's made in the earth. But what are those desolations made for? For his peculiar people. For his people that he's chosen above all others. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. There's other references. There's one that says Jehovah avouched. That is to declare, acknowledge, or claim solemnly as one's own Israel to be his peculiar people. That's Deuteronomy 26. Jehovah chose Jacob to himself for his peculiar treasure. Psalm 135. These statements are used in the Word of God, and so it explains to us, peculiar people is a unique, exclusive, one-on-one, personal, possessive relationship between God and men that He chose to have. That is a, it's a wonderful expression. It doesn't mean that we go out and are weird. You know, our women wear clothes that are more modest than others. They should. And so they should look a little peculiar while they're out there. But the reason that we wear those clothes that are more modest than others is because we're God's peculiar treasure on earth and we should dress like it. We should speak like it. We should act like it. Everything we do should be the peculiar treasure of God in the way that He's called us to be His children. These scattered Jews were God's personal and special treasure as His own elect children. And so are we. Why? Why did God do all this? What is Peter leading up to? Peter is about to transition into what they should be doing for the Lord. And he he leads up to this particular duty that we have right now. That ye should show forth the praises of Him. We want to show forth the praises of God. Why? Because God chose us to be His generation while appointing the rest of the Jews to be disobedient. And to look at the Jesus Christ and to find in Jesus Christ a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. God ordained Jesus would come out of Nazareth, which was a despicable little place. That's why Nathaniel said, as I told you last Sunday from John chapter 1, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? No, ordinarily nothing good comes out of Nazareth, but the Lord Jesus came out of Nazareth. God made Jesus in such a way that he had no comeliness that we should desire him as men. But spiritually, we greatly desire Him unto you, therefore, which believe He is precious. But God made Him a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to those that were appointed to disobey Him. The same reason He spoke in parables in Matthew chapter 13, because it is not given unto them to understand the things of the kingdom of heaven. I do not want them to hear and to believe and for me to convert them. That is what Jesus said in Matthew 13. No, Hardly anyone knows that, but that is the doctrine of the Bible. This huge difference has been made that God has chosen a generation, made them royal priests, kings and priests. They're a holy nation of His and His peculiar people. Why does God save us? God didn't save anyone for them. God didn't feel sorry for any sinner on His way to hell. That is a total misconception. It is not described anywhere in the Bible. God has not made anything for them. God has not done anything for them. God has done it for Himself. You say, but preacher, what about those fruitful seasons that fill our hearts with food and gladness? Do you really want to know what that's for? Are you really asking me a sincere question from Acts chapter 14 and verse 17? God sends food and rain from heaven to fill your bodies with a good meal, to fill your hearts with food and gladness? 
to leave a testimony and a witness in the earth that He is good. It all goes back to God. You say, why did God make little hummingbirds? Didn't He make little hummingbirds for me to get excited about them? No, He made little hummingbirds for Him to show His glory. Amen. So that you can say, you know, you most of you that enjoy hummingbirds couldn't even put together a cheap airplane model from Walmart. And I'm talking about a fixed wing object that can't do anything. You know, the little airplane glue and the little pieces. Come on. Are those all gone nowadays? But God makes hummingbirds. Amen. You know, when, you, when, you, when you're standing out on your deck and you hear that, you hear a little bit of air movement around you and you turn around, there he is sitting motionless about one foot away with that big drill. You know, and you're, you're wondering, what's he going to do to me? Take out my left eye or my right eye? He's just there to show you that God is great. That's what the creation is for. It's to show God's greatness and everything we can look at. God wants to be praised. That is why God created the universe. Where do you think you came from? Do you think there was a class action suit? We'd like to exist. We demand existence. There was nothing like that. God gave existence to a race of angels and a race of men. And why did He do it? to display things about Himself to other rational creatures. He didn't need us. He just wants to expand upon His glory by revealing it to other rational creatures. There are angels that are called elect and holy angels that are preserved in heaven for the service of God, and they love their jobs. They are standing there trembling with eagerness to do anything that God commands them to do. And there are other angels that are reserved in chains and held in darkness under the great day of judgment when the Lord Jesus Christ, a man, mind you, will cast them into the regions of hell called the lake of fire. Amen. And then there are men, and all of us sin in the Garden of Eden by design. God didn't make anyone sin. But let me tell you something, brethren. When you read about the flaming cherubim that God put up to keep the way of the tree of life, has it ever crossed your mind why didn't God put up the cherubim to keep the way of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He certainly knew how to keep Adam and Eve from the tree of life. Why didn't He keep them from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because He had already planned to display His goodness in the salvation of sinful rebels. You and me. And not all the race, just a portion of it. And so they're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people. And here's the reason God saved us for His glory. Look at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Never forget this. This is one of the favorite doctrines of our church. This is one of the most important things for us to remember. Why did God create? Why did God save? Why did God do anything? For His glory. It's all for His glory. The smaller we can make ourselves and the larger we can make God, we are fulfilling our destiny. And, and doesn't that make you the happiest? Is there anyone in here that the smaller you get, the bigger God gets, doesn't that make you the happiest? Because you're fulfilling what God regenerated you to do. Oh, to stand at the edge of an ocean at night. To stand at the edge of an ocean at night and just hear. Hear and feel the power and the darkness and know that if you were just out there a little ways, it's all over, it's curtains for you, and it's dark, and you're so small and insignificant, you're like a grain of sand on this huge ball of earth and water that the Lord's made, and you just, Lord, oh Lord God, I can't see a star, I can't see the moon, I can't see the sun, it's a little scary standing here all by myself, I'm so small and so insignificant, you wouldn't need any tsunami to wipe me out, you would just need a normal-sized wave. And it would... 
Oh, Lord, I love you. Because it gets him real big. It gets us real small. But you know, forget the ocean and forget a dark night. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people. I just put an ocean in a dark night and a hummingbird in the shade. We should show forth the praises of him. Romans chapter 9. This passage is so staggering to most. Most people haven't heard it. But Romans chapter 9 is so powerful. It says that Rebecca was going to have twins in verse 11. Romans 9.11 For the children being not yet born. Those are two babies inside Rebecca. Jacob and Esau, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. God had a purpose for one boy that was very different from His purpose for the other boy. Not of works, but of him that calleth. Remember that word calleth. What God chooses and appoints and ordains to have happen in a man's life. But according to him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Malachi chapter 1, verse 5, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now look at there's a question that pops up. Paul knows that this doctrine is hard for people to accept. So Paul, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Paul understands that a question is going to arise. Well, that's not fair. If God does it that way, it's not fair. What's Paul's answer? God forbid. It's very fair and it's very righteous. And then he goes on to explain it from other verses from the Old Testament that God has already told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Mercy is at my disposal and I will show it to whoever I want to. Nobody has a right to mercy. The very definition of the word mercy means you're under the power and authority of someone who has a right over you. I'll show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And I will show have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then he, sh- he gives an, a specific illustration of Pharaoh. Because this is quoted from Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. Why was there a mommy that had a baby named Pharaoh? Why did Pharaoh's kindergarten teacher think that he was bright? And send him home with report cards with all A's. Why did Pharaoh, among all the competitors for the throne of Egypt, win? Why did Pharaoh, twice during his childhood, not get the diseases that ravaged the rest of the nation and took out much of the population? Why did Pharaoh make quarterback of the high school football team? Why did Pharaoh graduate the top of his class of West Point? Why did Pharaoh, able to answer in interviews with the elders of the nation of Egypt, satisfy them to the throne of Egypt. Even for this same purpose of I raise thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be exalted in all the earth. The whole life of Pharaoh's family and of Pharaoh and that boy they took so much pride in. They had pictures all over their houses. And oh, mommy and daddy were so thrilled and brothers and sisters were so thrilled that Pharaoh was on the throne of the greatest nation on earth at that time. And it was for one purpose. For God to raise a man up high enough so that men would think he was pretty great so that he could crush him like a little bug. And he drowned him in the Red Sea. 
And he just didn't drown him quickly. He let him think about it by taking the wheels off his chariot. This is what the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 9 and verse 17. And it says in verse 18, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. God can harden anyone he wants to. When God hardens a man, that doesn't mean He infuses sin into that man. He simply lets that sin have free course without restraining it. And you and I and anyone in here are capable of any sin if God ever withholds His restraining grace and mercy. But He hardens men. Thou wilt say then unto me, here comes another question. Paul knows somebody's going to ask some question. Why doth he yet find fault? Verse 19. For who hath resisted his will? Paul, you just keep talking about God's will, God's will, God's will, God's will. Verse 15, you stated it four times. Verse 18, you stated it two times. Well, if it's always God's will, then how can he hold us accountable for sinning? I think I told you this uh, recently. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Verse 20. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? You know, I had a brother come to me last Sunday and say, You know, you've tried to give illustrations about how out of out of a lump of clay, God can make something beautiful and God can make something terrible. And, and you've used a toilet in the past for something terrible. But listen, a toilet's a wonderful thing. And we keep the toilets very clean in our house. Oh, he took me by surprise. He had me pinned up against the wall thinking about my terrible illustration of a clay vessel being a toilet. And he said, I've got a better one for you. And I said, I'd like to hear it. A clay pigeon. Throw it up. Boom. Blow it to smithereen. Perfect. See? I should just quit illustrations altogether. The rare ones are pitiful. Clay. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Verse 21, are you with me? This is what we believe. This makes us very different in the world today. Men used to believe this. Men used to love this doctrine. It's what makes men great to understand the sovereignty of God, that God created us for Himself. Verse 21, Hath not the potter power over the clay? Do you agree with that? Do you understand that? That the man who takes the lump of clay out of a bucket and slaps it down on the spinning wheel, does he have power over the clay? Does he have the authority to do whatever he wants to with it? Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if he tears that lump of clay apart and with one he makes a beautiful teacup with very delicate features and very nice painting on it and puts it on a mantle. I think that was the brother's other contrasting example. And then the other one's clay pigeons. Is that okay? If a potter does that, is it okay? Is it okay with you if he does that? If a potter does that with clay? Well, see, God doesn't think any higher of you than he does clay because God is the one that wrote Romans 9 and verse 21 and 22. To make one vessel unto honor for the mantle and another unto dishonor for the shooting range. Now we'll listen to this. What if God willing? Now we've been talking a lot about the will of God here. What if God willing, willing, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath 
He made vessels from clay for wrath, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Those are vessels of dishonor. They're dishonorable. And God will destroy them for the display of His wrath and His power. This is what the Bible teaches. I've taught it to you before. And, and that He might make known, to make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had afore prepared unto glory. Afore prepared to glory by choosing us in Christ Jesus before the world began. This is the doctrine that we love. And when we come back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and it starts off verse 9 by saying, but ye are a chosen generation, we understand that the sovereignty of God and His choice is what made the difference between verse 8 and verse 9 and the reason for God saving us that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which is described right here in these words, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. God saved you for Him. God saved you for you to praise Him for what He's done for you. That is what 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 is all about. God did all of this for these scattered Jews so that they would praise Him who had saved them and called them out of darkness. Having called them out of darkness. We saw the word calling back there in Romans chapter 9, verses 11 and 13. Calling starts with God's choice and appointment and ordination of a man to a particular end. Like God called Paul to be an apostle. But He didn't reveal Himself to Paul until He was ready for him to preach that gospel. But God had called Paul and separated him from his mother's womb. God had a purpose and a plan and a calling for Paul. Your calling was determined before you were even born by the abilities God gave you and the opportunities that God let you have in your life to get you into your proper calling. You know, there is a call of the gospel. And there is a call of regeneration. When God fits us for our calling. And then God calls us by our gospel by commanding us to repent. And we get all of those in successive order. And by God having chosen us in the beginning and regenerated us, then ordinarily we respond to that gospel call. But if there's no choice in eternity, which is called a call from way back then, then the call of the gospel has no effect because the Bible says, Jesus said in Matthew 22, 14, many are called, but few are chosen. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many mighty are chose, called and chosen. God hath chosen the poor things of this world to confound the things that are mighty. Okay, called us. He appointed us, chose us to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and to hear the gospel and to believe it when it was preached to us. He sent preachers just as surely as He sent Philip to preach to the eunuch. You will never hear from me except when I'm telling you it means nothing about the effectual call and the general call of the Calvinists. I deny that general call and the effectual call. I can't find those words in the New Testament. And I don't see that distinction in the New Testament. They use that distinction because they believe in gospel regeneration of sinners. We do not. So we deny their terminology. God regenerates without the use of the gospel. And until that regeneration has taken place, you will have no use for the gospel. Who hath called us out of darkness. Much more could be said about calling, but we'll move on. Out of darkness. What is the darkness here? It is sinful living, man-made religion, and ignorance of salvation. Calling them out of darkness. Sinful living, man-made religion, 
and ignorance of salvation. It is set in contrast to those in verses 7 and 8 that are stumbling over Jesus Christ and are offended by Jesus Christ, stumbling at the Word of God. Why do you stumble over something? Because you can't see it. You're blind. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 19 puts it this way, and it's a great verse that, that belongs attached to this passage. The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. The way of the wicked, sinful living patterns, create darkness and cause men to stumble over things, including religious things, so that they were following the traditions of their fathers about gold and silver rather than the precious blood of Christ. But God called them, appointed them, delivered them, and sent the gospel to them. The apostle Paul, who walked into their synagogues, and they said to him, men and brethren, do you have any word of exhortation for the people? Say on. And Paul said, thank you. I, I think I could use a couple moments in your pulpit. And Paul got up and preached to them the gospel. He called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you know how dark the world is? Do you know how dark your ancestors are? Do you know how dark your deceitful heart is? The Bible says your heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. How would you be living or worshiping if it wasn't for God calling you out of darkness? God condemns all the thoughts of men as vain darkness. All the thoughts of men. If men do not speak according to His Word, He says, they have no light in them. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. All men are blind in darkness, and they are unreasonable. Paul prayed in 2 Thessalonians 3 that he would be delivered from wicked and unreasonable men, for all men have not faith. Without faith, men are unreasonable because they're dark. Their minds are dark. And Romans chapter 1 says, they, neither were they thankful, they didn't give glory to God, and so God further darkened their hearts and gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. When men born blind reject offered light, God blinds them further. If God did not deliver you from darkness, where would you be today? You would never see any light. We should show forth the praises of Him. To praise Him is to exalt Him and extol Him and tell what wonderful things He has done for our souls. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one that caused us to believe, because 121 says, "...who by Him do believe in God." God delivered us out of darkness Himself by choosing to show mercy and compassion upon us. And instead of hardening us, He softened us. He softened us to the Gospel. While we saw others sitting beside us that walked out and had no interest in those things whatsoever, here and elsewhere in our lives, we've sat next to each other. We have the same, about the same size, the same bodily features and functions. And yet when they heard the gospel, it was foolishness unto them. They had no love or care for the Savior of the gospel. And they're in darkness. You can talk to your blue in the face to a Catholic. And unless God opens their eyes and ears and hearts, they will not see the foolishness of their religion. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Why are there so many Buddhists? Why are there so many animists? Why are there so many Hindus? Why are there so much ancestor worship? Why are there so many Muslims? Come on! Because if it wasn't for the grace of God, we'd be in one of those darkness, or all of them. You know what? You or I, because we're a little bit outside the the box, 
we might have tried four or five of them in a lifetime. Have you ever met somebody that's tried four or five of them? Just going from one false-ism to another? The praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The marvelous light of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the glorious knowledge and understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Lord of the universe, the Captain of angels, the Prince of Peace, the high, great High Priest, the Apostle of our profession, the great Bishop and Shepherd of our souls, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the door, the vine, the, the Shepherd. He's everything. Right, man. He's everything. He's the blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's the marvelous light of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, there are so many other verses that could be shared with you. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul said, God's made me an able minister of the New Testament. You, you understand? Paul preached the last 27 books. He, he wrote them. He made me an able minister of the New Testament. Amen. And then he goes on to describe, I've got a good job. He doesn't say those words. I've got a good job. Because that Old Testament had glory. I mean, Moses and the nation couldn't get near Mount Sinai. It was like a fiery furnace. The whole thing was shaking. There was a the sound of a trumpet that was breaking their eardrums. They had a rope around the base of Mount Sinai that even if an animal got through, they were to thrust darts through that stupid animal that had gone past that boundary and barrier. The whole thing was a shaking. It looked like a blast furnace that was on fire and God came down and spoke to them in a voice that they didn't want to hear. I mean, it was glorious. You know what Paul said? He said, you think that was glorious? That was temporary. They had to put a veil. Look at what I got. And he describes it in about four different verses by saying the glory of the New Testament exceeds the glory of the Old Testament by every measure. It's His marvelous light. You know, the Israelites were thankful that God came down on Mount Sinai, gave them a great list of commandments, not just the ten, but a number of small commandments so that they would have the wisest nation on earth. And all the nations of the earth that heard about God's commandments that Israel had knew that they had a God very nigh unto them and that God had given them commandments that were wonderful. They had great light, but they had no light compared to us. How clearly do they see the Lord Jesus Christ when a high priest went in once every year with the blood of bullocks and calves and he disappeared from sight and so you stood out there and you may have heard him shuffling around a little bit while he goes in there and he goes into the holy place and he sprinkles a little bit of blood on the mercy seat one time every year. Next year you had to do it again. Next year you had to do it again. If you lived to be 70, you watched it 70 times. How clearly did you see Jesus Christ? It was just a shadow. If you said to me, show me, show me your wife. And so she's standing over here and the sun has cast a shadow of my wife on the ground. I say, well, there's my wife. Are you happy with that? Have you seen my wife by seeing my wife's shadow on the ground? Mm-hmm. Well, all the Old Testament is, according to the testimony of the New Testament, right. is that the Old Testament is a shadow of the reality. Mm-hmm. We have the Lord Jesus Christ Amen. in the New Testament. We don't, we don't go to the Old Testament to learn about the New Testament. Yeah. We go to the New Testament to find out what the Old Testament was all about. Because yeah. otherwise, it's just a bunch of incredibly complicated ordinances. And God calls them rudimentary, elementary, carnal, base, Pitiful, beggarly, weak, old, ready to vanish away compared to the New Testament. Marvelous light is what I'm trying to say. Marvelous light. 
We have also a sure word of, a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in our hearts. We have the word of God that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. It is the, it is our light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. But we comprehended it by God's grace. He's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And let us show forth the praises of him who has so called us. The tenth verse says, Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And that is not to you, that is to them. That is a Jewish statement out of... Hosea chapter 1 verse 6, Hosea chapter 1 verse 9, verse 10, and chapter 2 and verse 23. This is about these scattered Jews. Because God had cast them off 700 years earlier, you are not my people. Lo Rahuma, you are not my people. When you have that low in front of those names, lo Ami, no mercy. Lo means no. That's why in the first verse of chapter 2, you have Rumaha and Ami without the low, because the knot's been pulled away. Not my people is now my people. No mercy is now mercy. It's a wonderful little... Peter just rips that in here out of several places from Hosea chapter 1 to these particular Jews. God cast you off 700 years ago. You weren't His people, but now you're His people. He had no mercy on you for a while, but now He's having mercy. But brethren, we're worse off. Forget 700 years. We should think about 6,000 years. 6,000 years of Gentile ancestry. Guess what we worshipped? Guess what we did? We weren't wise enough, smart enough, convicted enough to even think about using a synagogue to worship a monotheistic being named Jehovah. We're out there, we're out there talking to the sun and the moon and the stars. Offering children in sacrifice and according to Romans chapter 1, worshiping creeping things. That's what the Bible says about us. So verse 10 is really for the audience that Peter directly wrote, but it also applies to us because if there was ever a people that were not the people of God, as Hebrews, as Ephesians chapter 2 so plainly describes, we were those people. But now we are the people of God. So what should we do with this information? We should show forth the praises of Him who hath called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. God has saved us for us to praise Him. And then we should get ready to move into verse 11. Because dearly beloved, you, God obviously loves you and I love you. Peter is writing to these men. Dearly beloved, I beseech you. If God's done so much for us, right. how much can we do for Him? Very similar terminology to Romans 12, where the first 11 chapters of God's doctrine ends for the practical application of it. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Right Right there is our transition point in this epistle. Right there between verses 10 and 11. What God has done for them overall ends, and he starts taking up a general exhortation to godly living, And then he gets specific in verse 13 with civil rulers. He gets specific at verse 18 with your employers on the job. He gets specific with wives in verse 1 of chapter 3, husbands in verse 7, and so forth. Because that's what he saved us for. For us to look like the children of God while we're here in this world to bring him direct praise 
and to bring him indirect praise that by men seeing our good works will glorify our Father which is in heaven. Right. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.